Welcome to Hot Yoga Radio this fine spring day in March 2021. Taking my constitutional. I'm off in the hills, it's very quiet here. You see the odd uh, walker, but you don't see very many people. And this is a nice flat bit. which means that you can talk without <laughs> getting too out of breath. Okay, this is an Interesting Times episode, but it's about current affairs. And it's a, a sort of a, an attempt to rehash and perhaps give a little bit of form to a conversation that Anna and myself had yesterday. And uh, Anna can't be with me today, she's got things to do. I did promise to see if I could organise her ideas and thoughts and hopefully insights into a useful and cogent podcast. I'm just going to start with a metaphor that I'm going to steal from Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is a very great journalist and thinker. An American, um, an ordained Baptist minister, and a guy who spent many, many years in trouble spots in the world as a foreign correspondent, uh, watching countries disintegrate into chaos and turmoil and civil war and war. He said he's, he's got a very good handle on the way societies fall apart. And Chris Hedges, uh, as far back as I think 2019, 2020, certainly, was offering out the opinion that America was like a big pile of extremely dry tinder and one spark would set it off into a conflagration. And he said that he didn't know where the spark would come from and neither did anybody else and it could even be some, some almost insignificant event could trigger off a, a complete con- conflagration of civil unrest, revolt, rebellion, uh, mob activity, and so forth. Uh, Chris Hedges has, has carried on uh, repeating this, and I've heard him say this very same thing uh, recently. And I think he's right. And I think it applies in many, many parts of the world. Now, the way these conflagrations and mass rebellions pan out really depends on how organised various factions are and how prone might say the military is to intervene or not intervene and so forth and how stable the institutions of the country in question are and, and, and many sort of factors of that type. And very often they they fall to the right. The right is uh, manages to mobilise and capture what what uh, Chris calls the manipulation of legitimate rage. Now I think we are in a situation of that type in the United Kingdom. Some of my remarks are going to focus on that, though I will glance over the Atlantic and I will glance eastward also. So get that in your mind, the manipulation of legitimate rage. If you want an example, uh, the, the Brexit 
business in, in the way the UK uh, public voted to leave the European Union by uh, a fairly small majority, but nevertheless with a majority. And there was a huge manipulation of, uh, first of all, of data collected by uh, social media and te other tech companies. You know, just a rampant manipulation. Uh, not only was data used to predict people's behaviour, but to form it and shape it. And uh, Cambridge Analytica uh, now dissolved. They're worth investigating because you'll find what the methods are there, and they're methods deriving from the ability to collect huge amounts of data, to sort through it with machine learning and uh, nascent AI, artificial intelligence. And, and do this, this manipulation of behaviour, all in conjunction with the latest behavioural science. And it can be uh, pretty effective. And Brexit was a case in point, as was the election of Trump. I mean, the whole Trump phenomenon was a, a you know, was a manipulation of legitimate rage. And what, well, what's the source of this legitimate rage? Well, there are many sources of it, but mostly it's to do with economic decline or the economic system itself having very unequal results across populations. Just putting it crudely, the 1% have got richer and richer and richer and working people, ordinary working people have experienced a stagnation of wages in real terms and a decimation of their public services in many, many parts of the developed world. And a system which is likely to throw them into debt if they want an education and somewhere to live. So there's been a, a, a real uh, cause for resentment. And I say res resentment rests on a few things, but if you're going to put it sort of in big picture terms and broad strokes, it's to do with feeling powerless, not able to raise yourself up, up in life. Um, feeling that the corporations and the government does what they like with you, and a bit, a bit, the, the glimmerings of a perception of that. And I'm sure many Trump voters and many Brexit voters thought that they were voting against the establishment. Actually, they weren't. Their rage was just being manipulated to preserve the status quo um, behind a sort of surface veneer or a mask, a superficial mask of some kind of anti establishmentism. Now obviously this has the material uh, dimension of simply you know be, be, becoming becoming poor and and maybe even destitute uh, as a result of an economic system which is basically a trickle-up system which is congealing and concentrating wealth and power in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And those few, that 1%, is actually an international, uh, global elite, you might say, that operates mostly by manipulating finance, but also by manipulating key assets like oil and so forth, and also through military power, the military-industrial complex. 
it's fairly complicated how that, how that actually works, but uh, it, it's pretty easy to demonstrate that the system is uh, both locally in countries like ours and globally a trickle-up system. So, so there's a material aspect to the, uh, the the justifiable rage, but there's also obviously a cultural, superstructural, if you want to call it that, but a cultural aspect which I, I, I take to be very powerful in its 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 causal power, its, its ability to make things happen. And this is manipulated through otherisation, blaming foreigners, you know, Mexicans, build a wall, keep them out, um, uh, asylum seekers coming across the English Channel in, in bathtubs, and because we can have the spectacle of Nigel Farage standing on the beach and, and uh, emoting, uh, and displaying his outrage to uh, followers. So there's that otherisation, you know, so divide and rule, blame others. Don't blame your government, don't blame the elites, blame already desperate people. And of course, in uh, 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 the various conservative governments we've had over the years in the UK have been very, very good at this. And they've also created an internal other, you know, the, fe the feckless, shameless, uh, benefit claimants, you know, in America you've got the welfare queens, we blame them, the internal other. It's their fault, they're scrounged, they're not pulling the weight, etc. Uh, so you've got otherisation, divide and rule. Also uh, uh, deflect stories about the royal family, the whole kind of royal soap opera. Just deflects attention from what really is urgently important. And of course, the uh, the one percent basically again broad brushstrokes controls the press. And it's also a, a section of the one percent that owns all the big tech companies that control our data, that, that own our uh, uh, social media, which we use to try and communicate with each other, which they they are sort of quite busily censoring. And governments are flexing their muscles with a view to further censorship. So that narratives which expose what's actually going on, that expose the trickle-up system, that expose the nature of otherisation and divide and rule and all the rest of the, the plots, are suppressed or even deemed to, to originate in terrorism or something like that. So you, there's, a, there's an ideological struggle going on, obviously, but a material struggle as well. And the two are not disconnected, you know. As far as I can see, superstructure and base are uh, ex ex very, very strongly entangled with each other. It's a useful concept, but we mustn't overdraw it either. So in the British context, we've got this big pile of tinder. And I can see at least three factors intensifying the, uh, the dryness and the inflammability of of that tinder and this is mostly what we were talking about yesterday first uh, tinder intensifying scenario is the the ongoing saga of brexit uh, a lot of people say oh well it's all done and dusted now and it hasn't been so bad you can still get toilet paper and there's a weariness about the whole business as well i think and 
which perhaps tones down uh, some of the, the discourse. Nevertheless, it, it's not done and dusted, and it, Brexit may not kind of fully fully happen, at least not the deal may not happen. And there are still transitional measures in place in various sectors, and particularly with the, uh, the, the border in the Irish Sea, for facilitating uh, trade, in other words, by giving some leeway on the paperwork and the checks and so forth, so that trade can actually flow, that we don't get huge kind of blockages of trucks and ferries and all the rest of it. Unable to move their stuff because of the, uh, the sheer paperwork, the 17 copies in French and English of everything that they need to, to fill in. There is trouble on the horizon around that, in as much as the UK government has said it's going to unilaterally extend some of those uh, easement uh, protocols with respect to the flow of goods from uh, the Great Britain, the, main, the mainland, the, big, the biggest island in the British Isles, Great, is Great Britain, and Northern Ireland which is a part of the United Kingdom, but which is still in the customs union and single market in order to preserve the uh, invisible border between the Nor Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, which in turn is something that's guaranteed through the, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, an international treaty hammered out in the 90s too, bring an end to the troubles in Northern Ireland. In other words, a sectarian conflict, often bloody, uh, between loyalists or unionists, as they're sometimes called, who want the northern, the northern part of Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom, and people who want a united Ireland, uh, a division broadly running along Catholic, Catholic Protestant lines and going historically back to the Battle of the Boyne in 1688 or 87, whenever it was, but somewhere way back there in the 17th century. Long memories, but nevertheless a nasty, nasty conflict that was brought to, to end by Tony Blair's government, something that he did. They're quite happy to congratulate him on. Uh, Mo Molan is the hero heroine of that. You know, Jeremy Corbyn, actually, is worth uh, finding out that he had quite a, ro a good, interesting role in the whole process. But anyway, there's a, a, as a result of that, there's a fair bit of cyber rattling going on. An association of uh, loyalist organisations, unionist organisations, written to the Prime Minister, saying they no longer support the agreement. I mean, they would like a hard border on the, on the island of Ireland, and uh, you know, it's ideologically unacceptable to them for there to be a border down the Irish Sea. In other words, an internal border with customs checks we're in the United Kingdom, which they they are, they are fiercely committed to that union, far more fiercely than than your average uh, in English person who, who probably don't give a shit. <laughs> but nevertheless, there's there's, there's uh, you can smell the gunpowder over there a bit. This is not this is not great. I mean, the other the other thing, you know, I kind of reiterate that. Uh, 
Brexit is far from implemented, you know, with an agreement and all the rest of it. And it looks like there's a good possibility of no deal. Because the actual 27 European countries each have to ratify the, the agreement. They have to read it and ratify it. And they, they're wanting more time to read the 800-page document and read all the small print. Incidentally, the British Parliament wasn't given enough time to do that. They were given a day, you know, the MPs, to read uh, 800 pages of legalese, which they weren't going to do, were they? You know, so it's gone unscrutinised on this side. And rightfully, the 27 EU countries want to scrutinise it. And any one of them can veto it, just one. Slovenia might veto it, or Lithuania. And if some part of their economy is going to be damaged by it, they'll veto it. So there's, there's that possibility as well. So if you're one of those people who think it's all sorted out and it's not so bad after all, I, I, I counsel you to think again. Uh, when all these easements have finally disappeared, and perhaps maybe we land in a WTO no-deal situation, uh, Anna was of the opinion that Yellowhammer, you know, the government's estimation of uh, worst-case and moderate-case scenarios, uh, that would uh, transpire if there were a no-deal situation. She thinks that that could very well come in. You can kind of look at uh, certain food shortages. Food price increase is going to happen anyway, I would say. Uh, social unrest. The thing, uh, the, con the consequences will hit the poorer members of society disproportionately. And, and so forth. And there's a, good, there's a good chance that that might transpire. It may not. There might be a rescue at the last minute. Uh, there's, you know, any, anything is possible there, but it does look that, by and large, the whole Brexit thing is drying out that tinder. And I think if you get a lot of people having to go on food, food banks, and all, all the rest of it, and um, you know, the, the economic hit being sort of quite sorely felt, and there will be an economic hit of some, some percentage, percentage contraction of the economy, in the best-case scenario, let alone the worst-case scenario. But there's going to be a fair bit of unrest and some resentment. The question is then, who's going to capture that resentment and use its, its emotional energy to their cause? And the, the two factions trying most uh, intensely to capture that uh, resentment, alienation, anger, will be obviously the left and, and, the, and the far right and we see this playing out time and time again so an, another driver of this drying out of the, uh, the flammable material of our body politic is of course the pandemic uh, the, the UK economy contracted 9.9% during our year of pandemic in the last year in 2020 which is pretty well the pand uh, a whole year of pandemic and lockdowns and fire breaks and all the rest, all the rest of it. That's the biggest contraction in in the UK economy since records began, since the Napoleonic Wars. Bigger than the thirties, huge contraction, and the government's racked up a huge deficit in borrowing and QE money. to I don't know, stop people from starving, you know, and to pay for all the extra 
equipment and uh, measures that needed to be taken, as well as furloughing workers, making payments to self-employed workers and bailing out companies, small and large. So they're now kind of claiming that, they, that, that they've got to close some, of, close some of the borrowing back, you know. And, uh, of course, there was a budget last week. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, gave, gave a budget, and this was uppermost in his mind, is the fact that uh, GDP is um, the same as the... Uh, what you might call the, the, the deficit. So the deficit's like over 100% of GDP. And he's, he's one of those kind of economists. There's a Goldman Sachs man who thinks that, that that's uh, something he's got to start, start a little bit of belt tightening on. And the interesting thing is who is going to have to tighten the belt. Well, public sector workers, nurses... Doctors, firemen, police, I suppose. All kinds of public servants. And I think by public centre, they mean people who, who work in uh, city councils and so forth. I've uh, been told they've got a pay freeze. Now, there is inflation. Inflation's quite low, but there is inflation. So that means people are actually slowly having their... Uh, the standard of living just is, 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 is sort of gradually being whittled away. Bear in mind that there have been wage stagnations since the 70s in real terms. So there's quite a lot of fury about that. Now in the, uh, the budget, uh, Mr Sunak said that the health service workers, the nurses in particular, would get a 1% pay rise for their sterling work during the pandemic. The pandemics take a hell of a toll on these workers. 900 of them have died from getting infected. And the, the NHS is short-staffed because of cuts and... Uh, it's not it's not as coherent as he talked to be due to sort of privatisation of various aspects of it. This is further piled on the the pressure onto the the, the, the health service workers. And one percent, frankly, they re, they regard almost universally as as an insult, which it is. One percent, I say, is below is still below inflation, so they're still expected to take some kind of a pay cut having absolutely worked their guts out and, and, and placed themselves in danger for, for the common good. And uh, nurses' unions and other, other workers in the NHS service, cleaners, porters, technicians, their unions, I mean, United's uh, union with a big representation in the, uh, the health service, they're, they're, they're talking about strike action. Now, the Royal College of Nursing, it's a, very, it's a kind of conservative, old-school union and they, 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 they have a sort of a no-strike policy because they can't put patients in danger. They do all, the, all that stuff about vocation and so forth. Even they are talking about, about strike action. They're fucking furious. 
Now, it's interesting that Sunak, when he presented this, he presented it as an act of generosity and to show gratitude on, on, uh, by the government on behalf of the people for uh, the, the sterling work that the healthcare workers have done through the pandemic. Uh, given that other public service workers that have had their pies frozen, so they're making an exception and giving, them, uh, giving the nurses and so forth uh, 1%. And they had the gall to present this as, a, as an act of generosity, as do other government ministers when they get wheeled in on the radio. Anyway, the interesting thing is that there is now some strike action on the horizon and there's now a conflict between the professionals in the NHS and the government. Now, will this be the spark that lights the tinder? And I think there is general public support uh, for the position of the, the nurses and et al. Uh, that, this, that this is really is an, in, an insult. So, may you live in interesting times. At the moment, the, I'd mention in the UK, there's also a strike by gas workers. And they don't, they've been on strike for over three weeks. I think it was 27, 28 days or something like that. Uh, because uh, the, the, the gas industry suddenly introduced this policy of sacking workers and offering to rehire them under worse conditions. Longer, longer hours, not such uh, uh, um, less generous pay, so forth. Anyway, it's enough to, to get these guys to go on strike. So there's that too, and that's kind of... I think the, the whole business went to arbitration yesterday or the day before, and the, the gas workers said, no, you know, fuck off, you can't treat us like this. And all power to them, and I think they do enjoy considerable support. Uh, from the public. Now obviously there's going to be blimps and Tories and right-wing arseholes, you know, tell them they ought to be horse-whipped and dragged through the streets, <laughs> tarred and feathered, whatever, for being commie bastards. But, you know, I'll say all power to them. All power to anybody who's actually uh, putting their foot down and, and kind of flexing their muscles. I feel as though like Labour, I don't mean the Labour Party, I mean Labour people who work just the very beginnings of flexing their muscles on in this situation. I think you should bear in mind, just to give this some interesting context, that the Conservative government have squandered billions, literally billions, by giving contracts for uh, uh, pandemic-related uh, activities and products to private companies, basically to their mates. In some cases, very, very blatantly to uh, people with national companies who just happen to belong to the cabal of sort of right-wing press wallers, Tory politicians, corporate directors and so forth. And I've illustrated elsewhere, particularly in my, my investigation of Circo, that there is a very, very deep entanglement of, of, of state and corporations 
with with a cabal of people at its core. Uh, this is all demonstrable, there's no conspiracy theory shit here, this is all stuff you can look up and demonstrate and you could get it to hold in a court of law, it's that good. So so we've already demonstrated that. The mainstream media is not so keen on, on reporting this, it ought to be on Radio 4 every morning, like the, uh, the non-existent anti-Semitism of Jeremy Corbyn was. And it isn't, so you can see which, which side the, the mainstream media and the, the, the official uh, state media uh, are on. We don't hear so much about this. There's a little bit, because you can't fucking entirely ignore it, but this is democracy. But it, it's corruption by any name. And the, the left alternative media do, of course, get on the case of this. And there's enough public... Uh, peop and there's enough people in, in the public now what's gone on. They know that the people were given billions to supply PPE and then when it came it didn't work, it was the wrong sort. They knew that billions were spent on track and trace and it never materialised in any kind of uh, efficient way. We know this can be done from the examples of China and Vietnam uh, and other countries that really did quite well sitting on top of the pandemic uh, with uh, track and trace as, as, as one of the, the tools and as an effective tool. So there's no excuse, you know, that in some general way this thing didn't, doesn't work. It has been made to work in other places. And there's, I'm sure there's plenty of nurses now there, and I'm sure there's plenty of gas workers now there. I mean, here's another example. I mean, the teachers uh, got pretty grumpy about it being told to go back to school just after Christmas, uh, some time around Christmas, forget the exact dates. The kids, the kids went back for one day and then, then the government took them out. So the teachers said no. You know, and they had, they'd got a good strategy worked out of how to sort of uh, say that they weren't going to go into school and teach because it would be in breach of a health and safety law. You know, and they're entitled to stay at home and be paid in order to protect their own health and safety. And, and they sort of they wheeled this across the government. And the government capitulated. So it is working people, teachers, flex their muscles, and the government capitulated. They also capitulated on uh, free, free school meals in, in the holidays because of pressure applied by a... A prominent football player who got an immense amount of public support behind him. That's worth mentioning as well. Now it's slightly different, but it shows that pressure can be put on the government and they can be forced back. I actually think that the, the, the structure of the corporate government oligarchy is a lot more flimsy than most of us think. We, we have actually been... <laughs> Uh, conditioned very thoroughly to think that there is no alternative. Tina, there is no alternative, you know. Or, or uh, capitalist realism, as Mark Fisher said, you know. It's, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But I actually think that the thing that we're up against is more fragile than we think. And a widespread realisation of that, with a few successes uh, on, 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 on the front of industrial action and of the front of, of social campaigns. And I'm pretty sure that the school kids' uh, climate strikes and the uh, 
the activities of Extinction Rebellion have forced the government to move, to budge a little bit in, in the right direction. So have we got more power than we think is basically the, the upshot of what I'm kind of getting at with all this. However, uh, the left everywhere is pretty disorganised. And if the, if the tinder catches fire, at the moment, I think the, the, the right would have a, quite a good chance of prevailing because they, in some senses, have got their ducks in a row, even though they've took a bit of a hit uh, recently and they've got their own uh, organisational problems. But we should bear in mind, you know, that the World Economic Forum is very, very busy organising the, the, the world's major corporations and the oligarchs at the top of them on a global scale, to replace the international institutions that have a degree of accountability, like the United Nations, with unaccountable corporate entities, which have more or less captured governments here, there and everywhere. You know, the fascism going global is, you know, is what's basically happening. And uh, I've sort of found more, more evidence of, of the extent and the depth that that, that, that project uh, has attained. So, the upshot is, the, the left, and by the left, and I don't mean the small sectarian, I mean a very, the, the broad coalition of people of goodwill uh, needs to really organise, and to cross-organise, it needs to network and exchange information in order to eventually to be able to coordinate. Then, then this, uh, and the, because most people, when push comes to shove, and if, you, if they're kind of uh, um, encouraged to think and analyse a little bit, you know, our people are goodwill. We are many, they are few. And the, the situation is full of possibilities, and I say we're seeing these little these glimmers of hope. I mean, in India, the farmers strike, uh, supported by the workers, in their kind of you know hundreds of millions, is extremely encouraging. What we don't want to happen is that uh, when this stuff catches fire, and there is a conflagration, that we have a sublime moment like uh, Occupy Wall Street and Occupy London. Uh, but then it dissipates, the police break it up, the, society, the, the state fights back and it prevails through force and whatever, or the things runs out of energy and impetus and momentum. And then the activists are left kind of flapping around and wondering what to do. We are kind of in that situation a little bit. You know, after, after the, 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 the smashing, the, the, the vicious uh, press campaign against the Corbyn project, which we have to remember attracted hundreds of thousands of, of, of young, young people willing to give their energy to a struggle to realise a vision. They haven't gone away, but they're kind of flapping around saying, well, who do we follow? What do we think that, you know, what's going on here? So, organisation, 
And obviously this union uh, revival, I think, is, is pretty amazing. And it needs organised labour. Organised labour's got an immense amount of power if it wants to, if it can get organised. Immense amount. That can close down the economy for a start. You know. But uh, the social movements too, and they're, they're extremely valuable. Uh, it's, it's necessary for uh, people who are so committed to make a lot of noise about uh, environmental degradation, of which climate change is the most obvious and, uh, and one of them, uh, and extremely dangerous to, to our species. So all, all that needs to happen as well. And if, if the things can be pulled into some sort of moderate coordination, unstoppable, but there's all this organisational work to do now. And there are many, many fronts on which it can be done. It's not we all have to join one mass, mass movement, you know, it's, but it's the movements need to speak and coordinate and exchange. So, the way of pulling those diverse uh, components of, of, of the huge collective of people of goodwill, of the broad left if you want to call it that, it is a utopian vision. Because that means we can all be going in roughly the same direction, we're all going south at least. You know, perhaps in a broad, a broad swathe, you know, but we're all heading kind of southish. We ain't got half the people heading north, half the people heading south. Some, some standing on the spot and twirling around like dervishes. And it's a utopian vision that, that enables that to happen, and that, that is the purpose of utopias. Now I've said before they are dangerous. People can realise to officiously to realise their utopias, then they won't. They won't compromise. They, they make the perfect the enemy of the good. And they won't re react in an intelligent way to contingencies, you know, the, you know, to black swan events and things that, that need some fresh thinking and on the hoof. And they'll double down. And you, you, you do end up with, with disasters when a utopian idea usurps all the energy or, or is used improperly. Its proper use is to send us all in the same direction. Its proper use is to enable us to use imagination to identify what it is that we value and what kind of society we want to live in and what kind of society we want to leave to our children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's what it's for and that's what, that's what we need. So I, th I think we shouldn't be frightened of articulating these ideas and having the conversation and having the arguments and using our imaginations. And that will enable all that flapping around and directionlessness to at least be mitigated. And when we have a sublime moment, we'll be ready for the day after. We won't do Tahir Square with all its revolutionary idealism, followed by a despotic military regime somewhere down the line. Now, I think there are some good, good signs of uh, organisation. And I think there's a lot needs to be done internationally because a lot of these problems can only be dealt with internationally. And the, uh, the World Economic Forum and the, the, the corporate oligarchs need pushing back from their attempt to become the 
the, the, the focuses of power in the world that determine the, f the future. Even though they'll talk about socially responsible capitalism, when push comes to shove, the bottom line is, will be all that they care about. That is just a fucking cover story. That's pure ideology. Don't buy it. But on the positive side, peace, the Peace and Justice uh, Initiative that Jeremy Corbyn kicked off, mentally promising, DM25, Yanis Varoufakis' A Democracy in Europe movement. Um, in the US, I don't know, moves perhaps towards a People's Party, but also the, the struggle within the Democratic Party to uh, primary, more radical representatives and there's some there's some promise in that it's just problems but there's promise in it and of course the rise of media the rise of alternative media that need to be the forum in which this stuff gets uh, gets aired and a part of that of course is to expose the the way the mainstream media is really an ideological operation for preserving the status quo. So there's a lot there. And of course it looks as though there's a, 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 re a revivification in trade union activity. Uh, not least the discovery that, that the precariat can be unionised. So there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on. I think all of these, these tendencies need to talk to each other. We need to use our imaginations to find our direction, our values. Our strategies, let's make this practical as well. You know, well, you need a vision, but you also need an action plan. Well, uh, I hope that's kind of useful and it hasn't been too diffuse. Uh, mate, knowledge great again. Wash your hands, take care of yourselves. Patrons, thank you very much for the, the few, Bob. It's very helpful. And... I'm hoping that we can uh, increase the output a bit, which has been a little bit low, but as, as I've said before, I, I am researching stuff all over the place. I think I've raised my standards of rigour. <laughs> um, I want to be a bit certain, of, more certain of facts and figures, and, and uh, when I make claims, I want to kind of check them out, see how, how well they can hold up. Uh, lots of love, and over and out. <laughs>